Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening, children of the night. Yes, it's the 200th episode. We made it. In the middle of January 2012, I found a post in the blog Boing Boing by Cory Doctorow announcing a new horror podcast from the Starship Sofa people called Tales to Terrify. Later that week, in my parents' basement as I worked out, I listened to Larry Santaro introduced Martin Munt's narration of his own story, Chair, and I was hooked. Over the next couple of years, I've listened to this podcast every week. Then, after one particular call for narrators, I decided I'd give it a go. Our former editor, Cher Eves, would give me stories, and later Larry would announce them. When it came time for Cher to leave, I became editor. And once Larry passed, I became host. Right along with my journey with the podcast, many of you have been listeners since day one. Others we've picked up along the way, and according to an email or two here or there, some of you have joined us quite recently and are working through the 199 episodes prior to this one. A daunting yet heroic feat. All are welcome as we celebrate our 200th. A month or two back, I asked on our Facebook page what classic horror story should we air to commemorate this achievement. We received more answers than we will be airing over the next few weeks. The ones that didn't make the cut ran afoul of one of the most dangerous monsters in the world of podcasting, copyright. A good amount of the wonderful stories suggested, despite the authors having passed on before most of our listeners had even been born, they are still covered under copyright, and our staff has little successful experience interacting with estates. And we have no successful experience being sued over a few stories. However, many good stories did make the cut, and you will be hearing them tonight and next week and the two weeks after. First up will be an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce. 
Ambrose Bierce was born on July 24, 1842 in Miggs County, which is only a few counties away from the one I was born in. Miggs County is known today for being impoverished and a source of a legendary strain of marijuana. Things back in Bierce's day didn't sound much better than it is now. He was the tenth of thirteen children born to Marcus Aurelius Bierce and Laura Sherwood Bierce. All thirteen of the children would be given names starting with the letter A. His family instilled a love for reading and writing early in his life. Bierce left his family at the age of fifteen to work for an Ohio newspaper. At the beginning of the American Civil War, he enlisted in the Union Army's 9th Indiana Infantry Regiment. He fought in several battles, including the Battle of Shiloh, served as a topographical engineer, received acknowledgment for heroics for a rescue of a wounded comrade under fire, and received a severe head wound during the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, which would take him out of active service for several months. Afterwards, he would be part of an expedition to inspect military outposts across the Great Plains. Eventually, the expedition would arrive in San Francisco, where he would achieve the rank of Brevet Major and resign from the Army. He spent many years in San Francisco as a journalist, including becoming associated with William Randolph Hearst's newspapers, specifically the San Francisco Examiner. At the behest of Hearst, Bierce was sent to Washington, D.C. in January 1896 to undermine the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroad's attempts to have the federal government forgive what in today's money, would be over $3.5 billion of debt for the construction of the first transcontinental railroad, which Beer successfully subverted, saving the American taxpayers from having to foot enormous bill and making him a personal hero of mine. Now, at the end of Ambrose Bierce's life is a mystery. At the age of 71, he undertook a tour of his old Civil War battlefields. In December of 1913, he had passed through Louisiana and Texas, then crossed by way of El Paso into Mexico, which her revolution was underway. In Juarez City, he joined Pancho Villa's army as an observer, witnessed the Battle of Terra Blanca, and traveled with the army as far as the city of Chihuahua. He wrote a letter to a close friend of his concluding the communication with the statement that he left for places unknown on the following day. And that is the last the world ever heard of Ambrose Bierce. Despite efforts to inquire into his whereabouts, well-being, or continued existence, the search included dead ends, red herrings, and mystery after mystery. The man or his remains were never found. Now, let's listen to a story, an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water twenty feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards, laid upon the ties supporting the rails of the railway, supplied a footing for him and his executioners. Two private soldiers of the Federal Army directed by a sergeant who in civil life may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove, upon the same temporary platform, was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support. That is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm, thrown straight across the chest, a formal and unnatural position 
enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the centre of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot-planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards. Then, curving, was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzles of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope, between the bridge and fort, were the spectators, a single company of infantry, in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backwards against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the centre of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels facing the banks of the stream might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about thirty-five years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long dark hair was combed straight back to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a moustache and a pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark grey, and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside, and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross-ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. 
He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move! What a sluggish stream! He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was sound which he could neither ignore nor understand. A sharp, distinct, metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby. It seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear. Like, like the thrust of a knife, he feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and the little ones are still beyond the invader's farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist, and ardently devoted to the southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns, ending with the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint, longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction, that opportunity, he felt, would come as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South. No adventure too perilous for him to undertake if consistent with the character of a civilian who was at heart a soldier and who, in good faith and without too much qualification, assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a grey-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. 
Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. "'The Yanks are repairing the railroads,' said the man, "'and are getting ready for another advance. "'They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge, put it in order, "'and built a stockade on the north bank. "'The Commandant has issued an order which is posted everywhere.' "'declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, "'its bridges, tunnels, or trains will be summarily hanged. "'I saw the order.' "'How far is it to Owl Creek Bridge?' Farquhar asked. "'About thirty miles.' "'Is there no force on this side of the creek?' "'Only a picket post, half a mile out on the bridge, "'and a single sentinel at this end of the bridge. "'Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post, and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It's now dry and would burn like tinder. The lady now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness, and was as one already dead. From this state, he was awakened, ages later it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat. "'followed by a sense of suffocation. "'Keen, poignant agonies seemed to shoot from his neck downward "'through every fibre of his body and limbs. "'These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification "'and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periodicity. "'They seemed like streams of pulsating fire "'heating him to an intolerable temperature. "'As to his head,' He was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion. Encompassed in a luminous cloud, of which he was now merely the fiery heart, without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation, like a vast pendulum. Then, all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upwards with the noise of a loud splash. A frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored. He knew that the rope had broken, and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation. The noose about his neck was already suffocating him, and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river, the idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light. But how distant, how inaccessible! He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface. 
knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the outcome. What splendid effort! What magnificent! What superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavour! Bravo! The cord fell away, his arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on either side in the growing light. He watched them with a new interest, as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back! Put it back! He thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly, his brain was on fire, his heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out of his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish, but the disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge. His eyes were blinded by the sunlight. His chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draught of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were indeed preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the grey spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colours in all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonflies' wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface, facing down the stream. In a moment the visible world seemed to wheel slowly around, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but he did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. 
Suddenly he heard a sharp report, and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, splattering his face with spray. He heard a second report, and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a grey eye, and remembered, having read that grey eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-swirl had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice in a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier... He had frequented camps enough to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspirated chant. The lieutenant on shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How coldly and pitilessly, with what an even, calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquillity in his men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words, "'Company!' Attention! Shoulder arms. Ready. Aim. Fire. Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Diagra. Yet he heard the dull thunder of the volley, and rising again toward the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time under water. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine, and as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air and thrust into their sockets, the two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder, he was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought with the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make the martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound, diminuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. 
As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflected shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches of the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled around and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forest, the now distant bridge, fort and men, all commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by only their colours. Circular horizontal streaks of colour, that was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments... He was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds. "'Rubies, emeralds. "'He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. "'The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. "'He noted a definite order in their arrangement, "'inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. "'A strange roseate light shone through the spaces among their trunks, "'and the wind made in their branches the music of aeolian harps. "'He had not wished... To perfect his escape, he was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and a rattle of grapeshot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he travelled, "'laying his course by the rounding sun. "'The forest seemed interminable. "'Nowhere did he discover a break in it, "'not even a woodsman's road. "'He had not known that he lived in so wild a region. "'There was something uncanny in the revelation. "'By nightfall, he was fatigued, footsore, famished. "'The thought of his wife and children urged him on. "'At last he found a road.' which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untravelled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point like a diagram and a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars, looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once, twice, and again, He distinctly heard whispers 
in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it found it horribly swollen. He knew it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untravelled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking, for now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have travelled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands, waiting, with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Oh, how beautiful she is! He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow on the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a, with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. That was Ambrose Bierce's An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, as read by Ron John. Ron John has written and published children's books, scripts, and screenplays for animation and live action, musical lyrics, and libretti. He is a student of strange phenomenon, parapsychology, horror, and children's literature. You can see Ron John's videos and hear more of his work on the Spectre Collector blog, which is thecollectorspectre.blogspot.com.au. You can download his albums on the Spectre Collector Bandcamp site, thespectrecollector.bandcamp.com, and check out Ron John's hymns to the cannibal blood cult, the fungus sanguinarius at the Fruits of Madness blog, thefruitsofmadness.blogspot.com.au, and, of course, links will be in the show notes. The next three stories, too, that you'll be hearing tonight and one next week are from one Edgar Allan Poe. I'm not sure where to start with Poe's story because there is so much of it. And furthermore, if you're listening to a horror short story podcast, I'm going to bet that you know the broad strokes of his life and contribution to literature already. As a product of the American public school system, I can safely say that most of our American listeners had been introduced to dark fiction by none other than Mr. Poe himself. I'd go so far as to wager that most of the English-speaking world would be included in such a generality. So, I feel that I'll give the high points of his biography, and for the few listeners that may be unfamiliar with Poe, I'll leave it to you to research further. He was born Edgar Poe on January 19th of 1809 in Boston to two actors. The next year his father abandoned the family, and the year following his mother died. John and Francis Allen of Richmond, Virginia, took him in, although did not adopt him, 
Poe entered into the University of Virginia for a single semester, ran out of money, and dropped out of UVA. With his disintegrating relationship with his fostering parents and without his own income, Poe enlists in the U.S. Army in 1827 under a assumed name and begins publishing poems. Two years into his five-year enlistment, he sought to end it early in order to receive an appointment at West Point Military Academy, which was done successfully. Within a year, Poe intentionally had himself court-martialed to be expelled from West Point and traveled to New York, where he continued to publish volumes of his poems. During this time, he became the first well-known American to try and support himself exclusively from writing. Note the word try. As it seems that he was generally unsuccessful at this, regularly having to resort to begging money and assistance from friends and family. In 1835, he found a job as an assistant editor in Richmond. This job lasted only a few weeks after his boss got him drunk. Poe then left for Baltimore to stay with his family, during which time the 26-year-old Poe married his 13-year-old first cousin, Virginia Clem. He then returned to Richmond with Virginia and her mother to be reinstated in the job after promising for better behavior. Over the next decade, Poe would work as an editor and continue to publish with mixed success. In 1842, his wife Virginia began to show signs of tuberculosis. This seemed to cause him to drink at an even greater excess than he had known for before. Poe moved to a small home in the Bronx where his wife would die less than a year later. Following his wife's death, he would be described as increasingly unstable and erratic. Only two years after her passing, Poe was found on the streets of Baltimore by a Joseph W. Walker. Poe was delirious, distressed, and certainly in need of medical help. Four days later, he would be dead. Poe's cause of death is unclear and has been debated, and all medical records, including his death certificate, have been lost. Though his tragic life, he wrote tragic stories. We will hear some of them this evening. We will start with the facts in the case of M. Valdemar. Of course I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of M. Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. Through the desire of all parties concerned, to keep the affair from the public, at least for the present, or until we had farther opportunities for investigation, through our endeavors to effect this, a garbled or exaggerated account made its way into society, and became the source of many unpleasant misrepresentations, and very naturally, of a great deal of disbelief. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts, as far as I comprehend them myself. They are, succinctly, these. My attention for the last three years had been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and about nine months ago it occurred to me, quite suddenly, that in the series of experiments made hitherto, there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis. It remained to be seen, first, whether in such a condition there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence. Secondly, whether if any existed, it was impaired or increased by the condition. Thirdly, to what extent, or for how long a period, the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. There were other points to be ascertained, but these most excited my curiosity. The last in especial 
from the immensely important character of its consequences. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend, M. Ernest Baldemar, the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica and author, under the nom de plume of Issachar Marx, of the Polish versions of Wallenstein and Gargantua. M. Valdemar, who has resided principally at Harlem, New York, since the year 1839, is, or was, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person. His lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers, in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair. The latter, in consequence, being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous, and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiment. On two or three occasions I had put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control, and in regard to clairvoyance I could accomplish with him nothing to be relied upon. I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed thesis. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution, as of a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was, of course, very natural that I should think of him, Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him, and he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject, and, to my surprise, his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character which would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination and death. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about 24 hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received from M. Valdemar himself the subjoined note. My dear P, you may as well come now. Doctors D and F are agreed that I cannot hold out beyond tomorrow midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in fifteen minutes more I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days, and was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue. His eyes were utterly lusterless, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. His expectoration was excessive. The pulse was barely perceptible. He retained Nevertheless, in a very remarkable manner, both his mental power and a certain degree of physical strength. He spoke with a distinctness, took some palliative medicines without aid, and, when I entered the room, was occupied in penciling memoranda in a pocketbook. He was propped up in the bed by pillows. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them the minute account of the patient's condition. The left lung had been for 18 months in a semi-osseous or cartilaginous state, and was of course entirely useless for all purposes of vitality. The right in its upper portion was also partially, if not thoroughly, ossified, while the lower region was merely a mass of purulent tubercles, running one into another. Several extensive perforations existed, and, at one point, permanent adhesion to the ribs had taken place. These appearances in the right lobe were of comparatively recent date. The ossification had proceeded with very unusual rapidity. No sign of it had been discovered a month before, and the adhesion had only been observed during the three previous days. Independently of the phthisis, the patient was suspected of an aneurysm of the aorta. But on this point, the osseous symptoms rendered an exact diagnosis impossible. It was the opinion of both physicians that M. Valdemar would die about midnight on the morrow. It was then seven o'clock on Saturday evening. On quitting the invalid's bedside to hold conversation with myself, the doctors had bidden him a final farewell. It had not been their intention to return, but, at my request, they agreed to look in upon the patients about ten the next night. When they had gone, I spoke freely with M. Valdemar on the subject of his approaching dissolution, as well as, more particularly, of the experiment proposed. He still professed himself quite willing, and even anxious to have it made, and urged me to commence it at once. A male and a female nurse were in attendance but I did not feel myself altogether at liberty to engage in a task of this character with no more reliable witnesses than these people, in the case of a sudden accident might prove. 
I therefore postponed operations until about eight the next night, when the arrival of the medical student with whom I had some acquaintance, a Mr. Theodore L., relieved me from my father's embarrassment. It had been my design originally to wait for the physicians, but I was induced to proceed first by the urgent entreaties of M. Valdemar, and secondly by my conviction that I had not a moment to lose, as he was evidently sinking fast. Mr. L. was so kind as to accede my desire that he would take notes of all that occurred, and it is from his memoranda that what I now have to relate is, for the most part, either condensed or copied verbatim. I waited until about five minutes of eight, when, taking the patient's hand, I begged him to state as distinctly as he could to Mr. L. whether he, M. Valdemar, was entirely willing that I should make the experiments of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, yet quite audibly, Yes, I wish to be. I fear you have mesmerized. Adding immediately afterwards, Deferred it too long. When he spoke thus, I commenced the passes which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. He was evidently influenced with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead, but although I exerted all my powers, no further perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after ten o'clock, when doctors D and F called, according to the appointment. I explained to them, in a few words, what I designed, and as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony, I proceeded without hesitation, exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones, and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time his pulse was imperceptible, and his breathing was stertorous, and at intervals of half a minute. This condition was nearly unaltered for a quarter of an hour. At the expiration of this period, however, a natural, although very deep, sigh escaped the bosom of the dying man, and the stertorous breathing ceased. That is to say, its stertorousness was no longer apparent. The intervals were undiminished. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before eleven, I perceived unequivocal signs of the mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination, which is never seen except in cases of sleepwalking, and which it is quite impossible to mistake. With a few rapid lateral passes, I made the lids quiver, as an incipient sleep, and with a few more I closed them altogether. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously, and with the fullest exertion of the will until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer, after placing them in a seemingly uneasy position. The legs were at full length, the arms were nearly so, and reposed on the bed at a moderate distance from the loin. The head was very slightly elevated. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentleman present to examine M. Valdemar's condition. After a few experiments, they admitted him to be an unusually perfect state of mesmeric trance. The curiosity of both the physicians was greatly excited. Dr. D. resolved at once to remain with the patient all night, while Dr. F. took leave with a promise to return at daybreak. Mr. L. and the nurses remained. 
We left M. Valdemar entirely undisturbed until about three o'clock in the morning, when I approached him and found him in precisely the same condition as when Dr. F. went away. That is to say, he lay in the same position, the pulse was imperceptible, the breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached, M. Valdemar made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own, as I passed the latter gently to and fro above his person. In such experiments with this patient, I had never perfectly succeeded before, and assuredly I had little thought of succeeding now. But to my astonishment, his arm very readily, although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. M. Valdemar, I said, are you asleep? He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about the lips and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At its third repetition, his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of the ball. The lips moved sluggishly, and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words, Yes, asleep now. Do not wake me. Let me die so. I here felt the limbs and found them as rigid as ever. The right arm, as before, obeyed the direction of my hand. I questioned the sleep-waker again. Do you still feel pain in the breast, M. Valdemar? The answer now was immediate, but even less audible than before. No pain. I am dying. I did not think it advisable to disturb him farther just then, and nothing more was said or done until the arrival of Dr. F., who came a little before sunrise and expressed unbounded astonishment at finding the patient still alive. After feeling the pulse and applying a mirror to the lips, he requested me to speak to the sleep-waker again. I did so, saying, M. Valdemar, do you still sleep? As before, some minutes elapsed ere a reply was made and during the interval the dying man seemed to be collecting his energies to speak. At my fourth repetition of the question, he said very faintly, almost inaudibly, Yes, still asleep, dying. It was now the opinion, or rather the wish of the physicians, that M. Valdemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present apparently tranquil condition, until death should supervene. And this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak to him once more, and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleep-waker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper. 
and the circular hectic spots which hitherto had been strongly defined in the center of each cheek went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of the breath. The upper lip, at the same time, writhed itself away from the teeth, which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosing in full view the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume that no member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of M. Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I now feel that I have reached a point of this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, simply to proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in M. Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses when a strong vibratory motion was observed in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice, such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. There are indeed two or three epithets which might be considered as applicable to it in part. I might say, for example, that the sound was harsh and broken and hollow, but the hideous whole is indescribable for the simplest reason that no similar sounds have ever jarred upon the ear of humanity. There were two particulars, nevertheless, which I thought then, and still think, might fairly be stated as characteristic of the intonation, as well adapted to convey some idea of its unearthly peculiarity. In the first place, the voice seemed to reach our ears, at least mine, from a vast distance, or from some deep cavern within the earth, in the second place, it impressed me, I fear, indeed, that it will be impossible to make myself comprehended, as gelatinous or glutinous matters impress the sense of touch. I have spoken both of sound and of voice. I mean to say that the sound was one of distinct, of even wonderfully, thrillingly distinct, syllabification. M. Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to the question I had propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, Yes. yes. No. I have been, been sleeping. sleeping. And now, now, I, I am dead. dead. No person present even affected to deny or attempted to repress the unutterable, shuddering horror which these few words thus uttered were so well calculated to convey. Mr. L. swooned. The nurses immediately left the chamber and could not be induced to return. My own impressions I would not pretend to render intelligible to the reader. For nearly an hour, we busied ourselves silently without the utterance of a word in endeavors to revive Mr. L. When he came to himself, we addressed ourselves again to an investigation of M. Valdemar's condition. It remained in all respects as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. 
I should mention too that this limb was no farther subject to my will. I endeavored in vain to make it follow the direction of my hand. The only real indication, indeed, of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory movement of the tongue whenever I addressed M. Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. To queries put to him by any other person than myself, he seemed utterly insensible, although I endeavored to place each member of the company in mesmeric rapport with him. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleepwaker's state at this epoch. Other nurses were procured, and at ten o'clock I left the house in company with the two physicians and Mr. L. In the afternoon, we called again to see the patient. His condition remained precisely the same. We had now some discussion as to the propriety and feasibility of awakening him, but we had little difficulty in agreeing that no good purpose would be served by so doing. It was evident that, so far, death, or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us all that to awaken M. Valdemar would be merely to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy, dissolution. From this period, until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months, we continued to make daily calls at M. Valdemar's house, accompanied now and then by medical and other friends. All this time, the sleeper-waker remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurse's attentions were continual. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening or attempting to awaken him, and it is the perhaps unfortunate result of this latter experiment which has given rise to so much discussion in private circles, to so much of what I cannot help thinking unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of relieving M. Valdemar from the mesmeric trance, I made use of the customary passes. These, for a time, were unsuccessful. The first indication of revival was afforded by a partial descent of the iris. It was observed, as especially remarkable, that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids of a pungent and highly offensive odor. It was now suggested that I should attempt to influence the patient's arm, as heretofore. I made the attempt and failed. Dr. F. then intimated a desire to have me put a new question. I did so as follows. M. Valdemar, can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return of the hectic circles on the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth, although the jaws and lips remained rigid as before. And at length, the same hideous voice which I have already described, broke forth. For God's sake, quick, quick, put me to sleep, or quick, waken me. Quick, I say to you that I am dead. I was thoroughly unnerved, and for an instant remained undecided what to do. At first, I made an endeavor to recompose the patient, but... Failing in this through total abeyance of the will, I retraced my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. 
In this attempt, I soon saw that I should be successful, or at least I soon fancied that my success would be complete, and I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes, amid ejaculations of dead, dead, absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, his whole frame, at once, within the space of a single minute, or even less, shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands. Upon the bed, before that whole company, there lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putridity. That was Edgar Allan Poe's Facts in the Case of M. Valdemar, as read by Chioke Ayodel. Chioke is a professor of African American Studies in Richmond, Virginia. He has worked in public radio, most recently as a producer for Backstory with the American History Guys, and he loves horror. Listening to horror podcasts is the only way he can get to sleep most nights. To hear some of his other recordings, visit soundcloud.com slash Cheesematic. Link will be in the show notes. Next up will be Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Montelado. The thousand injuries of Fortunato I had borne as best I could, but when he ventured upon insult, I vowed revenge. You who so well know the nature of my soul will not suppose, however, that I gave utterance to a threat. At length, I would be avenged. This was a point definitely settled. But the very definitiveness with which it was resolved precluded the idea of risk. I must not only punish, but punish with impunity. A wrong is unredressed when retribution overtakes its redresser. It is equally unredressed when the avenger fails to make himself felt as such to him who has done the wrong. It must be understood that neither by word nor deed had I given Fortunato cause to doubt my good will. I continued, as was my wont, to smile in his face, and he did not perceive that my smile now was at the thought of his immolation. He had a weak point, this Fortunato. Although in other regards he was a man to be respected and even feared, he prided himself on his connoisseurship in wine. Few Italians have the true virtuoso spirit. For the most part, their enthusiasm is adopted to suit the time and opportunity to practice imposture upon the British and Austrian millionaires. In painting and gemmary, Fortunato, like his countrymen, was a quack. But in the matter of old wines, he was sincere. In this respect, I did not differ from him materially. I was skillful in the Italian vintages myself, and bought largely whenever I could. 
It was about dusk, one evening, during the supreme madness of the carnival season, that I encountered my friend. He accosted me with excessive warmth, for he had been drinking much. The man wore motley. He had on a tight-fitting party-striped dress, and his head was surmounted by the conical cap and bells. I was so pleased to see him that I thought I should never have done wringing his hand. I said to him, My dear Fortunato, you are luckily met. How remarkably well you look today. But I have received a pipe of what passes for Amontillado, and I have my doubts. How? said he. Amontillado. A pipe? Impossible. And in the middle of the carnival? I have my doubts, I replied, and I was silly enough to pay the full Amontillado price without consulting you in the matter. You were not to be found, and I was fearful of losing a bargain. Amontillado? I have my doubts. Amontillado, and I must satisfy them. Amontillado. As you are engaged, I am on my way to Lucchesi. If anyone has a critical turn, it is he. He will tell me Lucchesi cannot tell Amontillado from Sherry. And yet some fools will have it that his taste is a match for your own. Come, let us go. Whither? To your vaults. My friend, no, I will not impose upon your good nature. I perceive you have an engagement. Lucchesi, I have no engagement. Come. My friend, no. It is not the engagement, but the severe cold with which I perceive you are afflicted. The vaults are insufferably damp. They are encrusted with nitre. Let us go, nevertheless. The cold is merely nothing. Amontillado. You have been imposed upon. And as for Lucchesi, he cannot distinguish Sherry from Amontillado. Thus speaking... Fortunato possessed himself of my arm, putting on a mask of black silk and drawing a roquelaire closely about my person. I suffered him to hurry me to my palazzo. There were no attendants at home; they had absconded to make merry in the honour of the time. I had told them that I should not return until the morning and had given them explicit orders not to stir from the house. These orders were sufficient, I well knew to ensure their immediate disappearance, one and all, as soon as my back was turned. I took from their sconces two flambeaux, and giving one to Fortunato, bowed him through several suites of rooms to the archway that led into the vaults. I passed down a long and winding staircase, requesting him to be cautious as he followed. We came at length to the foot of the descent and stood together on the damp ground of the catacombs of the Montresors. The gait of my friend was unsteady, and the bells upon his cap jingled as he strode. "'The pipe,' said he. "'It is farther on,' said I. "'But observe the white webwork which gleams from these cavern walls.' He turned towards me, and looked into my eyes with two filmy orbs that distilled the room of intoxication." "'Nitre?' he asked at length. "'Nitre,' I replied. "'How long have you had that cough?' <coughs> 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 
My poor friend found it impossible to reply for many minutes. It is nothing, he said at last. Come, I said with decision. We will go back. Your health is precious. You are rich, respected, admired, beloved. You are happy, as once was I. You are a man to be missed. For me it is no matter. We will go back. You will be ill, and I cannot be responsible. Besides, there is Lucchesi. Enough, he said. The cough is a mere nothing. It shall not kill me. It, I will not die of a cough. True, true, I replied. And, indeed, I had no intention of alarming you unnecessarily. But you should use all proper caution. A draught of this Madoc should defend us from the damps. Here I knocked off the neck of a bottle, which I drew from a long row of its fellows that lay upon the mould. Drink, I said, presenting him the wine. He raised it to his lips with a leer. He paused and nodded to me familiarly while his bells jingled. I drink, he said, to the buried that repose around us, and I to your long life. He again took my arm and we proceeded. These vaults, he said, are extensive. The Montresors, I replied, were a great and numerous family. I forget your arms. A huge human foot door, and a field azure. The foot crushes a serpent rampant, whose fangs are embedded in the heel. And the motto? Nemo me impune lacesset. Good, he said. The wine sparkled in his eyes, and the bells jingled. My own fancy grew warm with the Madoc. We had passed through walls of piled bones with casks and puncheons intermingling into the inmost recesses of the catacombs. I paused again, and this time I made bold to seize Fortunato by an arm above the elbow. The nitre, I said. See, it increases. It hangs like moss upon the vaults. We are below the river's bed. The drops of moisture trickle among the bones. Come, we will go back ere it is too late. Your cough. It is nothing, he said. Let us go on. But first, another draught of the Madoc. I broke and reached him a flagon of de Grave. He emptied it at a breath. His eyes flashed with a fierce light. He laughed and threw the bottle upwards with a gesticulation I did not understand. I looked at him in surprise. He repeated the movement, a grotesque one. You do not comprehend? he said. Not I, I replied. Then you are not of the Brotherhood. How? You are not of the Masons. Yes, yes, I said. Yes, yes. You? Impossible. A Mason? A mason, I replied. A sign, he said. A sign. It is this, I answered, producing a trowel from beneath the folds of my roquelaire. You jest, he exclaimed, recoiling a few paces. But let us proceed to the Montiado. Be it so, I said, replacing the tool beneath the cloak and again offering him my arm. He leaned upon it heavily. We continued our route in search of the Amontillado. We passed through a range of low arches, 
descended, passed on and descending again, arrived at a deep crypt, in which the foulness of the air caused our flambeau rather to glow than flame. At the most remote end of the crypt there appeared another less spacious. Its walls had been lined with human remains, piled to the vault overhead in the fashion of the great catacombs of Paris. Three sides of this interior crypt were still ornamented in this manner. From the fourth side the bones had been thrown down and lay promiscuously upon the earth, forming at one point a mound of some size. Within the wall, thus exposed by the displacing of the bones, we perceived a still interior recess. In depth about four feet, in width three, in height six or seven. It seemed to have been constructed for no special use within itself, but formed merely the interval between two of the colossal supports of the roof of the catacombs, and was backed by one of their circumscribing walls of solid granite. It was in vain that Fortunato, uplifting his dull torch, endeavoured to pry into the depth of the recess. Its termination the feeble light did not enable us to see. Proceed, I said. Herein is the Amontillado. As for Lucchesi, he is an ignoramus, interrupted my friend as he stepped unsteadily forward, while I followed immediately at his heels. In an instant he had reached the extremity of the niche, and, finding his progress arrested by the rock, stood stupidly bewildered. A moment more, and I had fettered him to the granite. In its surface were two iron staples, distant from each other about two feet horizontally. From one of these depended a short chain, from the other a padlock. Throwing the links about his waist, it was but the work of a few seconds to secure it. He was too much astounded to resist. Withdrawing the key, I stepped back from the recess. "'Pass your hand,' I said, over the wall. "'You cannot help feeling the nitre. Indeed, it is very damp. Once more, let me implore you to return. No? Then I must positively leave you. But I must first render you all the little attentions in my power. The Amontillado! ejaculated my friend, not yet recovered from his astonishment. True, I replied. The Amontillado! As I said these words, I busied myself along the pile of bones of which I have before spoken. Throwing them aside, I soon uncovered a quantity of building stone and mortar. With these materials, and with the aid of my trowel, I began vigorously to wall up the entrance of the niche. I had scarcely laid the first tier of the masonry when I discovered that the intoxication of Fortunato had, in a great measure, worn off. The earliest indication I had of this was a low, moaning cry from the depth of the recess. It was not the cry of a drunken man. There was then a long, obstinate silence. I laid the second here, and the third, and the fourth, and then I heard the furious vibrations of the chain. The noise lasted for several minutes during which, that I might hearken to hear it with more satisfaction, I ceased my labors and sat down upon the bones. 
When at last the clanking subsided, I resumed the trowel and finished without interruption the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh tier. The wall was now nearly upon a level with my breast. I again paused, and, holding the flambeau over the masonwork, threw a few feeble rays upon the figure within. A succession of loud and shrill screams, bursting suddenly from the throat of the chained form, seemed to thrust me violently back. For a brief moment I hesitated. I trembled. Unsheathing my rapier, I began to grope with it about the recess, but the thought of an instant reassured me. I placed my hand upon the solid fabric of the catacombs and felt satisfied. I reapproached the wall. I replied to the yells of him who clamored. I re-echoed, I aided, I surpassed them in volume and in strength. I did this, and the clamor grew still. It was now midnight, and my task was drawing to a close. I had completed the eighth, the ninth, and the tenth tiers. I had finished a portion of the last and the eleventh. There remained but a single stone to be fitted and plastered in. I struggled with its weight. I placed it partially in its destined position. But now there came from out the niche a low laugh that erected the hairs upon my head. It was succeeded by a sad voice, which I had difficulty in recognizing as that of the noble Fortunato. The voice said, <laughs> A very good joke, indeed. An excellent jest. We shall have many a rich laugh about it at the palazzo <laughs> over our wine. <laughs> the Amontillado, I said. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado. But is it not getting late? Will not they be awaiting us at the palazzo? The Lady Fortunato and the rest? Let us be gone. Yes, I said. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor. Yes, I said. For the love of God. But to these words I hearkened in vain for a reply. I grew impatient. I called aloud. Fortunato! No answer. I called again. Fortunato! No answer still. I thrust a torch through the remaining aperture and let it fall within. There came forth in reply only a jingling of the bells. My heart grew sick on account of the dampness of the catacombs. I hastened to make an end of my labor. I forced the last stone into its position. I plastered it up. Against the new masonry I re-erected the old rampart of bones. For the half of a century no mortal has disturbed them. In pace requiescat. 
That was Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado, as read by Drew Sevenensty. You haven't experienced true horror until you've weathered a winter in the bleak, frozen waste of the Canadian prairies, and Drew has survived quite a few. He's been spinning tales since he was old enough to hold a pencil. Most often, Drew flexes his creative muscle as an advertising copywriter and creative director. He hopes you won't hold that against him. But in his spare time, he moonlights as a voiceover artist for radio and video commercial work. Drew lives in Saskatoon, Canada with his wife, son, and menagerie of furry creatures. Thank you, Drew. And that will be our show for the evening. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.